Father God, we come before you this morning on this beautiful sunny day and just uh, basking in the, the fact that you deeply love us. Lord, uh, each of us that come into this place today, we pray that you meet us here, that we're able to feel your pursual of us in all things. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, like Luigi mentioned, we obviously have a smaller crowd today. I'm glad we came together a little bit. Um, I, I say this almost every time we have one of the smaller services, but I, it's because I think it's so true, and it's always struck me in these spaces. When I, I uh, after I finished seminary, I actually went back to to Hope uh, Hope or Western Seminary for a little bit to, to to take a couple more preaching classes, and one of them was with Tim Brown. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, he was the president of uh, Western Seminary seminary for a while. He's also a phenomenal preacher. Uh, and he was leading one of the classes I was in. <clears throat> and he, the story that he told, some of you I know have heard this already, but the story that he told uh, was when he was a young preacher, he was getting invited to go to a lot of different places because he had been developing a, a rep, uh, reputation. And so he was invited to a, a service one week. Uh, and when he showed up, there were like 15 people there, right? It was a really, really small gathering. And he said his initial reaction was one of annoyance and frustration, maybe a little bit of anger, going, hey, I put all this work into prepping, and there's no one here to hear it. And so uh, as they were going through the worship set, he, he, uh, he, was, he was in that space, but he, but he said a prayer. And he said, in the midst of that prayer, uh, the words of the Psalms came to him. And, said, and, and, and what, what came through his mind was, that whenever you are gathered, whenever you worship, all of heaven worships with you. And he said he was convicted in that moment, realizing that, yes, there were 15 people there, but the room was also filled with the heavenly hosts. He's like, I was, he, he actually said in the class, he goes, I was convinced that I was going to open my eyes and I was going to see a room filled with angels. Uh, he goes, I didn't, uh, but I've always held on to that. That when we're together, whether there's 150 of us or whether there's 30 of us, we worship together with all of the heavenly hosts. And I just think that's a cool thing to remember on Sundays like this. Because there's something special about it that we don't get on other days uh, in these small communities. So, thank you for being here on Labor Day. Uh, everybody gets 300 Harbor Points for being here on this week. Those are valuable. Save them. Uh, someday we'll, they'll be worth something. Uh, but I'm really, gl really glad you're here today. Uh, we're not going to do a long announcement time, uh, but just a couple things. If you haven't picked up the monthly uh, this month, you, sh you, you should. There's so many things starting in the next few weeks here. Uh, pay attention to um, your, your emails. If you're not signed up for the email, you can fill out the card and get those. Or grab the, the monthly newsletter back there that has everything coming. Uh, we have so many things that I am so excited about that we want you guys to be involved in. Uh, just highlighting a couple there, those, all of those. It's just a packed full week. I, I love that we, we even laid it out that way just to see that worship doesn't happen just on Sunday. It happens all the way through the week. And so uh, if all of those different, if any of those things stick out to you, we encourage you to get involved in those. Um, a couple of ones just to put on your radar. Uh, at the end of the month, we start Alpha. Uh, if you haven't been part of that before, it's a space where literally all questions are, are, are fair game on the table. Um, it's one of my favorite ministries. It's a space where we get to explore what faith is all about, and, and, and we literally open it up to whatever kind of question you may have about anything. It's, it's great. Um, the other one is, starts in a couple weeks here, and that's the common ground that we have. 
Um, if you weren't with us for the last Common Ground, what Common Ground is, is a space where we can discuss together difficult issues of the day. Um, actually, Alpha and Common Ground kind of work together. If Alpha's acting whatever questions and having discussions around faith stuff, Common Ground is doing a similar practice around social issues or political issues or other hard topics that we have in our society around us um, so that we can actually talk to each other well and hear each other well. Uh, we're, we don't all think the same, uh, and so uh, just to give you a little preview of what our next Common Ground is going to be on, um, is we're going we to have two weeks on race, uh, which obviously the first thought a lot of people have is, whoa, that could be tricky, right? Exactly. That's why we want to tackle it. We want to come into a space where we can have an honest discussion about what that looks like. Uh, we were able to invite in a good friend of mine, uh, the pastor of Unison Church down uh, in Kentwood, uh, Chase Stansel. Uh, he is uh, an African-American uh, uh, pastor of Unison and one of my favorite human beings on the planet. So even if you don't want to talk that topic, come just to hear Chase. He's that good. Um, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll discuss uh, in that space too. A couple things to just remind us all of is that we don't go there to, to argue. We don't go there to solve problems. We go there to hear each other and to figure out where are we coming from so that we can learn how to have those discussions well. So I encourage you to check that out too. That's going to start in a couple weeks here. All right, <clears throat> moving into to the message for today, um, I, uh, we're getting to, uh, we're, we've been moving through the book of Genesis all year, and we finally started our last mini-series in Genesis. It actually is kind of crazy that we've almost made it through the entire book. Uh, we're at the end of the book of Genesis, and what, one of the things that I've learned as we've gone through Genesis or as we went through Matthew last year is that the Bible is such an amazing book that has so many different layers. I've read through it a number of times, and each time I do, new and exciting things come out. There's layers upon layers upon layers of stuff, and I hope you see that in Genesis as well. This, the book of Genesis ends with, a, with one of the longest narratives we have on a single character in the entire Bible. If you don't count Jesus, because the Gospels are that, uh, we don't focus on any character as long as we focus on Joseph. Uh, he gets the, the significant portion of the end of the book of Genesis. And so we are actually our entire last mini-series was on Joseph, and we're going to end this series on him as well. Now, Lisa kicked us off last week with this last little bit, but just to kind of catch you up to speed if you weren't there, uh, we start on the story of Joseph. And he's one of 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, he, uh, he is Jacob's favorite son. Maybe you remember the coat of many colors or the well-ordained co or ornamented coat. Uh, he's shown favoritism by Jacob, uh, which actually ticks off all of his brothers, if you remember that. So they, they, they steal his coat, they throw him into a well, and eventually they sell him into slavery in Egypt. So Joseph goes to Egypt. He actually initially thrives there as the, as the servant of a, of a man named Potiphar. Uh, but then Potiphar's wife betrays him, lies about him, and so he's thrown into prison. And so he spends years in prison there in Egypt as well. Uh, he then, last week we saw, was then rescued by Pharaoh. He's, Pharaoh has these dreams, and Joseph's able to interpret those dreams. And so Pharaoh says, hey, I need you. Uh, the dreams were interpreted by saying, you're, you're going to have seven years of plenty, uh, followed by seven years of famine. And so if you prep, you're going to be in great shape. Pharaoh goes, I like it. Why don't you do that? Puts him in, it makes him the, essentially the second in command over all Egypt. He's in a place of a lot of power. And that's where we pick up the story today. Joseph has found himself back on top, wrestling with, with his identity, which, which Lisa talked about last week. 
We have the contrasting of two different experiences or two different, uh, which the experience that he had growing up was negative with his brothers and the experience with Pharaoh was positive. So is he going to capitulate and adapt to Egypt or is he going to remember where he came from? Lisa kind of kicked us off with that last week. We're going to continue with that idea in a little bit different way today. So if you're following along in your Bible, we're in Genesis 42 at this point uh, and we'll begin reading there. Genesis 42.1, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he says to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt, so go down there and buy some for us. Now, I just want to pause here for a second. It doesn't actually have anything to do with the point I'm making, but that scene to me, I feel like could fit into a sitcom. Like if that was in like Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm, I think that we would be like, that's hilarious. Can you imagine an old Jewish dad Who's, who they run out of food, they're starving, and his boys are just sitting there looking at each other, right? The pick, put that in a comedy, and you're like, I see it, right? What are you guys doing sitting there looking at each other? Do something, right? Anyway, it has nothing to do with the point. I just think it's a really funny picture. All right, we'll move on. <laughs> then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. I want to pause there for just a second and see what we can pull out of those passages before we go on. Uh, So Jacob hears that there's grain in Egypt, so he sends his ten boys. Now, if you remember, there are eleven left, right? So there was twelve sons altogether. Joseph is obviously in Egypt, means there's eleven left. But Jacob holds back one of them, Benjamin. Uh, Joseph and Benjamin were, were brothers of the same mother, whereas the rest of his brothers were of different mothers. So Leah had a number of kids. Jacob had two um, mistresses that had some kids. Uh, and then Rachel, which Jacob had a favoritism problem. So he had a favorite wife, which was Rachel, then he, who had two sons, which also were his favorite. Joseph being one, Benjamin being the other. Uh, Benjamin was also the youngest. And so uh, Joseph sends the 10 other boys but leaves Benjamin at home, uh, which again just shows the kind of favoritism that that Jacob has put into that place. Um, So they make the journey from Canaan to Egypt. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, then this map would make sense to you in that way too because we talked about this as well. There's a pathway that they take in uh, from from Hebron through uh, through to Goshen there. Um, and, uh, and that's a really important thing, so just leave that up for a second, and we'll talk about that path in just a minute. But Lisa set, us up, uh, set up this part last week. Joseph's been put in charge of everything gra- uh, grain distribution related, uh, with an, and with an international famine happening, that means he's got a whole bunch of power. He's got power in Egypt, but he's also got power over the nations around Egypt. And so the ten brothers go to Egypt to get grain, and of course, that means they're going to need to go to Joseph. So you might be wondering, how does Joseph recognize his brothers, but they don't recognize him? Uh, Lisa also mentioned a little bit of this last week. There are a few reasons for that. First, 
Joseph had assimilated to Egypt in many ways. It actually tells us that he cut his hair uh, and wore Egyptian clothing, right? So he, he, he dressed like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. We can assume to, to, uh, that he walked like an Egyptian, same as Lisa said last week, right? You know, one of these things. I don't know if the Egyptians actually walked that way. They probably didn't at all. Uh, but he, but so it, anybody who would come to see Joseph, he would have looked Egyptian, not Hebrew. Uh, he had been there for that long and, um, and, and would have carried himself that way. Second, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. And so they had to assume, one, he's either a slave, right? That, that would be a fair assumption. Or that he's dead, right? And if you've ever run into somebody out of the context you're used to, uh, it's very easy to not recognize them, right? Like how many times have you seen somebody out of context, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that was you. Uh, if, especially if he's dressed different and they had no way of assuming that he would be second in all of Egypt, and so they don't recognize Joseph at all, even though he recognizes them. Which puts Joseph in a really interesting position, doesn't it? Uh, puts Joseph in an amazing position of power, in particular over his brothers. He's in, a he's in a position of power over a lot of things in Egypt, that's true. But in, a, but in a very specific way, he is in a position of power over his brothers that's pretty rare and pretty extreme. At this particular point, Joseph has an opportunity to do whatever he wants. He has an opportunity for revenge. His brothers beat him. They sold him to die. He, they are why he spent years in prison. They were why he spent years as a piece of property. All, they, they're the cause of all the pain that he's had to experience over these last few years. Now, if you put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a minute, sure, he's in a good place right now. But when he spent those years in that prison, what do you think he was thinking about? What would you be thinking about? Right? The days that are cold in a dungeon, or you don't have enough food, or the chains are getting a little heavy on your wrists. I know I would be thinking about my anger towards my brothers, right? I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be experiencing this because if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. There's a direct correlation between the two. Joseph at this point has had years to wrestle with those things, some of them being incredibly difficult, painful years. And now they're sitting in front of him and they don't realize it's him. He also is in a position that whatever he said would happen, right? <clears throat> if he, if he, we'll get to that in just a second. Let's continue on uh, in the passage. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man, and your, ser your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see where we're unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who live in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Now I have to imagine one, uh, one, of the, one or more of the brothers might have a little bit of brown in his pants at this point, right? This is going to be a very, a very, very scary moment for them. Uh, because this has to be absolutely terrifying. They would be terrifying uh, it would be even more terrifying if they realized it was Joseph talking to them. But even, if the, even with them not understanding that, uh, it, this would be an incredibly terrifying interaction. Because Egypt is the only place in the entire region with any food, right? 
That's why it says that there are people coming from all over the place to buy food from Egypt. History shows us that if one nation has food and a bunch of others don't, the likelihood of someone coming to try to take that food is really high, right? If I don't have it and you do and I have an army, I might as well just go take your food, right? And so Egypt is selling their grain and becoming rich off that. That's true. But they also have to be constantly aware of someone trying to come and take it without paying for it. In other words, a war, right? Now, to make matters worse, we throw that map back up. The road they traveled, you might remember from a couple weeks ago, from the Ethiopian eunuch story, is a narrow way uh, with water on one side, the Mediterranean Sea, and mountains on the other. The only other way you can get there you, it would, is either by boat. Uh, the entire bottom part of that peninsula there is the Sinai Peninsula is desert. Uh, that's where Israel wanders for 40 years in that space. It's barren. There's nothing there. Going through there is just not happening. So you have one little pathway through. If you're going to come from Canaan or you're going to come from anywhere east to get to Egypt, that's the way you go. So, we, like we talked about in the Ethiopian eunuch story, the person who controls that pathway controls your entry into Egypt. Also, if you are going to try to attack Egypt, you need to try to find a way through the Egyptian defenses, through the exact pathway that these brothers would have taken to get there. <clears throat> so, the brothers would understand why they would look suspicious. They're coming from Canaan, a place with no food, through the territory uh, in which, they, if they were going to attack, that's where they would be spying. They understand why they look suspicious, but they also know that they aren't planning attack because they aren't in a position of power, but a position of desperation, right? They're starving. The story plays out like a movie, right? Also, before we can move on, can you even imagine what it must have been like for Joseph to hear the line of verse 13, if we can throw that back up again? He asked the brothers what they're doing. And they said, your servants were 12 brothers. Immediately, that's got to get Joseph's heart pumping a little faster, right? you got to imagine it would if it was me. Ten of them are there. One is behind, so his brother Benjamin, he realizes, is still alive and back home. He also now realizes for the first time that his dad's still alive. He doesn't know that, and now he does. And then that last phrase, if you had spent all that time thinking about your brothers and they said to you, and one is no more, what would that start stirring up in you? I can't even imagine what I would start feeling in that space, looking at my brothers who don't realize it's me and they actually just told me that they think I'm dead. That would be a trip, wouldn't it? But the story goes on. Joseph said to them, It's just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you'll be tested. As the surely as the Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you're not, then surely as the Pharaoh lives, you're spies. And he put all of them in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified and you may not die. This they proceeded to do. <clears throat> they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with, pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That is why this distress has come. 
Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He, being Joseph, turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. We're going to pause our story at this point this week. And it's kind of an awkward place to pause it, uh, but next week we're going to actually focus on the story of Benjamin. Actually, the title is It's All About the Benjamins next week. Actually. (laughs) Uh, So we'll continue the story on talking about Benjamin next week. But for now, I want to stop here because I want to talk about something specific. I want to talk about power. We've already set up the fact that, that, that Joseph possesses all of it in this scenario. If he wanted revenge, it's within his grasp. If he ordered them killed instantly, it would happen. If he wanted them in prison for the rest of their lives, he could do that. If he wanted them beaten or whatever he wanted, he could do, and there would be no consequence for him at all. It would be completely within his power to do that. Now, I've often wondered what Joseph was thinking about for those three days that he had all of his brothers in jail, right? He gives them this thing. He says, I need you to go back and get Benjamin. He actually at first says, I need one of you to go back and I'll keep the rest of you. He then seems to change his mind, throws them all in jail for three days, and then comes back and says, all right, we'll flip it. One of you stay, the rest go back. But he obviously was wrestling with something for those three days, right? He's processing through something. He's trying to figure out what he wants to do. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what, but i got to imagine that there was a lot churning inside of him in that space. We know by the conclusion that eventually he comes to the place of going, okay, my father's household is starving, so we do need to get grain back there, right? So he's got a good spot in front of him that way. He also has got to be struggling with all that anger that we talked about. I have my brothers in jail right now. I have another brother back home. I can do whatever I want to them. What am I going to do? Do I want to see them beaten before they go? You've got to imagine that even the best person might feel like that would be appropriate, right? They beat him. They sold him. He did all the, all the stuff we talked about before. <clears throat> he's, proce- he, he's processing through all of that. You've got to imagine that questions he probably hasn't thought about for a long time are swirling back through his brain. Some of those conversations he had with himself in the, in the bottom of the jail are swirling back through his brain. That anger, that hurt, that pain, that frustration, that, the shock of seeing his brothers again, all of those things have to be going through his mind. And so he brings them all back out and tells them again to go get Benjamin. And at that particular spot, something really interesting happens. Through this whole interaction, we find out now that Joseph has been speaking Egyptian using an interpreter. And so as a result, his brothers don't realize he's Hebrew and don't realize he can speak Hebrew. So they have a side conversation, assuming that he can't understand them. And as a result, he gets a little insight into their hearts. The first thing that they think is that this is some kind of cosmic karma, right? This is happening because of the bad thing that we did. We did something wrong, and so as a result, we're now being punished. Which means they've been torn up by what they did. The fact that that pops into their mind first means that's something they've been wrestling with. They realize what they did was wrong. They're they're not cold-hearted about it. They realize that that they should be paid back for the horrible thing they had done when Joseph was younger. 
They know they, be, they believe and know that they deserve retribution, which is actually the thing that moves Joseph. What it tells him is that at least his brothers have some remorse for what they've done. Which brings us back to power. Power is such a tricky thing for Christians in particular, for us in this space. We live, it's something that, that we in our country, in our society, in our place where we live now have a really weird relationship with, often a very twisted relationship with. Even the, uh, <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in our particular culture, we value people with power, but we often, we often aren't thoughtful about how we use it or wield it. What's fascinating is as you read through the scripture, how we use our power is a theme that's brought up over and over and over and over and over again. We see it in this story. Joseph has power. He could wield it in any way that he wants. And how is he going to? But we see it pushed through into different spaces throughout Scripture as well. See, in America, when we have power, we often use that power or often think the people that have that power to keep power, right? We actually see that in most of the structures throughout history. Once you've gained power, you use that to try to, to protect and persevere your power throughout time. All throughout the ancient kingdoms, uh, ancient empires, the, the biggest problem that they had was how do we keep people from rebelling once we've taken them over? How do, once we have power, how do we maintain that power? Most of the time in the world when we're thinking about power, that's how we think about it. And so we use it to keep other people beneath us. Joseph could have done that here as well. See, what we believe about power shapes a lot of our lives, doesn't it? See, the fact of the matter is some of us feel powerless, but all of us have power in one aspect of our lives or another. There's, there's certain, whether it, and they're differing varying degrees, but there is always, we always have power over something or someone somewhere. A simple way to understand that is in, in, in our parenting. If, you've, if you have kids or been around kids, you recognize there's a power dynamic there that's really tricky sometimes, right? When my girls were younger... My power, the power dynamic worked one way. If I said it, it went, right? That's how it went. Like, they, they had to listen. There was no discussion around it, right? This is what we're doing, and you're going to do that. I have power. You do not have power. That, you know, when they're five, six, seven. Uh, I have a middle schooler now, uh, and that dynamic is shifting. Uh, she doesn't believe I deserve to have all that power anymore, right? Maybe you, <laughs> maybe you guys have experienced some of that before. I don't know, Right? Uh, she, she believes that she should have some of that power too. And the fact of the matter is she's right. She should sometimes. Now, it's, and so we have to wrestle with what that looks like. Uh, what, what is, what, there, especially in those moments where I'm sure I'm right, only to learn later that I'm wrong. It doesn't happen often, but once in a while, you know. Uh, in that space, do I, do I double down? Do I force the issue through because I have the power that she doesn't? Or do we have to find some other way to deal with it? What does it look like for me to apologize? What does it look like for me to show consistently consistency? What does, it make, what does it look like for me to show her how to use her power later on? What does it look like for me to empower her to live her life after? All of those things we have to wrestle with. What we believe about power will shape the way that we live our lives in that sphere, right? But it keeps, getting, it keeps expanding from there. What we believe about power will change the way that we interact with general society. It will change the way we vote. 
how we use our power in that space or how we should use our power will, will influence our social ideas or policies or, or, or different, different ways to, to treat or care for people in that space. It's literally how our entire political system works. My guess is many of us wish, whether we wish that we wouldn't or not, we're going to move. My guess is many of us wish we wouldn't be moving in this direction, but we're about to start another really intense political season. Maybe you've already seen the ads, right? In that space, the entire discussion is around who should have power, and then once they get it, how should it be used, right? And we all have different ideas on what that looks, and so it shapes how we interact with that space. This is not... And just to be very, very clear, nothing I'm going to be saying from this point on is advocating for any kind of social platform or party or structure. It's just something that we do have to recognize, though, because we live in this world and we live in this country. We're part of it. What we believe about power shapes a lot of how we live our lives. It shapes how we vote. shapes how we parent. It shapes how we treat those who've wronged us, like in Joseph's case. It, like in Joseph's story... We need to wrestle with how we use power. There's a, difference about what we, there's a difference between what we can do and what we should do. There's a difference in what we, we have the, with the power to achieve and, and the best way to wield it. There's a difference between justice and revenge. And so I'm going to close today by focusing on, on, on my opinion, the best commentary on power in Scripture, which is Paul explaining how Jesus used his power. It comes to us from Philippians 2. If we can throw that up on the screen. Paul begins by saying, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any comfort in sharing, uh, the sharing of the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being in one spirit and one mind, or uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, be of the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now I want to pause at that line for a minute. The Greek word that they're using for being used to his own advantage, it can also be translated something to be grasped or something to be retained. It's actually a word picture. The idea of a fist holding on to something, right? That he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or retained or held onto with white knuckles. That's the word picture that we're getting. But rather made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Can we throw up the next slide too? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Throughout Jesus' life, he showed us what the relationship with power should look like. What, he, what, what, what this passage is essentially saying is that Jesus, like Joseph, had the power to execute any kind of revenge or anger or justice he desired. 
He had the power to zap us all if he wanted to. And actually, it would have worked, would have, been, would have fit in, into the thing they laid out in Genesis 3, right? If you eat of this fruit, you'll surely die. So if Jesus said, you're all dead, he, it's in his right. But his relationship with power is different from the way that we structure power. He had power, and he doesn't use that power to maintain his power by pushing everybody else down. It actually says he doesn't consider that a power something he needed to retain, grasp, or hold on to, but instead he uses it to, he releases it. He uses it to bring others up rather than to keep them down. It's a completely upside-down picture of how power works. The rest of the world uses their power to keep other people down, not to empower them into flourishing. It says Jesus could have done everything, but instead he makes himself the lowest. And that's not a new theme just to Philippians. It's this all encaptured here in Philippians. But how many times when we're going through the book of Matthew do we see the disciples arguing with each other? Who's the greatest? Who gets to sit in the best seat? And Jesus goes, you completely missed it. You, if you, that power is, is the idea of keeping others beneath you. Instead, if you want to actually wield real power, you make yourself nothing. You become a servant to serve other people. We are called as Christians to think about our power well and to use it to empower others. It's not easy. It's complicated. It sometimes gets us into really hard spaces. I would argue that's exactly what Jesus does, and it's actually what Joseph does throughout his life, too. In the positions that he has of power, he doesn't, and so the spoiler for the story that we haven't got to today, he actually uses the power that he has well. He treats his brothers well. He actually did with Potiphar's wife as well. He had power in that space, and it ended up costing him in that case. You see, when we do power the way that Jesus lays, or Paul lays out here, the way that Jesus models for us, it requires something from us that we hate, and it's why we're so resistant to it. It says that Jesus could have grasped or retained power, but instead he releases it, making himself nothing. He becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. He has to experience hardship and pain, even though he uses power in the way the Bible's asked him to. What it requires him to do then is trust that this last verse is true. And I think this is the hardest thing for us as humans to do. Trust that if I give up my power for the sake of someone else, that God will restore, my, 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 will restore me, whether it's my reputation, whether it's my, 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 um, the way people see me, the way I'm perceived. Do I trust God with my reputation is essentially what, what, what we have to ask ourselves. Because what the biblical model is, is that if we use our power to empower other people, that God then will raise us up. Jesus puts himself to the lowest, and therefore God exalted him to the highest. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That's the sticking point for us, isn't it? When we have power, we feel like we have control. To use power the way the Bible describes is asking us to give up that control and trust that God will restore us. We as people hate to not have control over our own stuff, right? And yet, that's what we have here. What would it look like 
If the church was constantly in a space in which we were putting the needs of others before, if we were to do the first part that Paul says, if you have any of this love, be in the same mindset as Christ Jesus and use your power in this way. In Joseph's story, he is exalted because he uses his power the right way. In Jesus' story, he's exalted because he uses his power the right way. And in both of their stories, there's a time of suffering as well. I would argue that's the same for every single one of the apostles. They use their power for the empowerment of other people and as a result bring hardship upon themselves, but the world forever changed because of it. The trajectory of Israel, as we'll see through the next couple weeks, is changed forever because of how Joseph uses his power. The church, the world, the resurrection, all of those things happen because of the way that Jesus uses his power. We're here in this space today because of the way the apostles used their power. For their, not for their own benefit, but for the good of the world around them. It's not easy. We're going to have to wrestle with what that looks like, but over and over and over again through Scripture, we're called to use our power well. And so the challenge this week for each of us is, one, to just do a good analysis of where we have power in our lives. You all have power somewhere. Maybe you don't feel like you do, but you, there, there, you have some power somewhere. And then whether it's at your job, whether it's in your family, whether it's with your kids, whether it's at church, whether it's... In a, in a social sphere, whatever it might be, what power do you possess? And then have you used it in the way that is like-minded like Jesus? If you haven't, maybe you haven't because you think, it will cost me. Mm-hmm. Probably. But what might change? Whose life tra- trajectory might change? What would that do for you to actually rely on God to exalt you to the place that he wants you to be. For far too long in the church, for far too long in general society, we have only fought about power in the way the world fights about power. And it's gotten us into a really weird space. I think we can all agree with that. I don't care what side of the aisle you fall on, nobody likes it right now, right? The way that Americans wield power, the way the church has wielded power, has been really twisted for a really long time. What would it look like if we actually took Jesus' word seriously, both in big social spheres and also at home, in our businesses and in our lives, what would it look like if we were constantly putting the needs of others before our own, trusting that God would continue to protect our reputation in those hard, hard, difficult situations and positions? I would argue and I would pose that it will would, change the trajectory of whatever sphere you are involved in in that space. It'll change the way your family functions. It'll change the way this church functions. It'll change the way our city, our state, our country functions if we can start to use power in the way that Jesus modeled for us. How we use our power is not a subtle theme in Scripture. So how are we going to use it? Will you pray with me? Father God, we just uh, we come before you this morning to, to first just lament the massive amount of misused power throughout history. We see it through the pages of Scripture. Israel struggles with that all the time. We know that we struggle with it in our families, in our jobs, in our, in our social spheres. We also know it's really difficult. So God, we pray that you give us the wisdom that we need to use our power in the way that you have called us to. That we can be 
like-minded with Jesus, who did, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but releases it to become nothing for the sake of all of us. God, may we use our power for the empowerment of other people around us. May we use our power to see others lifted up, even if that's to our own deficit. God, we pray specifically then that we can meet you in those spaces so that we can trust that you will make the last first. That the world changes and the trajectory of what that we're on is different because we followed your lead. Amen.